Hey everyone, this episode was originally recorded on the 1st of this month and was originally slated for the 4th, so if any information is out of date, that is why. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode 169. Today is June 4th, 2020, and you're listening to another Human Factors cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hey, what's going on, Nick? How are you? Hey, Blake, I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, I'm loving life. It's a wonderful Thursday. It is a wonderful Thursday. We got some excellent news stories for you. Well, really, only one news story, but that's okay. It's, we're going to deep dive on it. It'll be fun. Um, and we got a special... Uh, it came from Reddit, or it came from the community session section this week. Uh, we actually uh, have something a little different for you. So uh, the news story this week is the SpaceX launches. That, that'll be fun to talk about. But first, a little bit of programming notes. Uh, again, we do have that Patreon refresh. Uh, we're getting into the thick of Human Factors Minute here, Blake. We got it's a lot of them up. so good. We got a lot of good ones up there. Uh, this is where we do highly produced, researched, minute-long episodes that you can listen to and get a bite-sized chunk of human factors right in your ear hole um, for uh, the low, low price of being a Human Factors Cast Patreon. Um, so go check that out. We are very excited about it. We say it every week. Um, we say it every week because we still haven't built it into our mid-commercial, <laughs> our mid-run commercial yet. So go check it out. It's, it's worth it. I think uh, you know we're pretty excited about it. Um, shorter shows. This one might be a little bit longer. But but just in general, shows are shows are shorter. Uh, typically, we like to stay away from the bad news. We are going to be talking about COVID nineteen a little bit later in this episode. I hope that's okay with you all. But we do keep it human factors and we do keep it relevant. So just look out for that. Aside from that, Blake, what's been going on in your world? Ben, not a whole lot's been going on. One thing that I just wanted to say at the top of the show that I've really enjoyed in the past little while that you'll get a little bit of a taste of in. Um, the later part of the episode where we do the community bit, but it's been really fun to interact with a lot of people through LinkedIn recently, asking me a lot of questions about, you know, what I do for design lab for mentoring people in UX, or what is it really like to work as a human factors engineer? And what does the job really look like in terms of what do you do day to day and how it differs from other people? And it's just, even though COVID-19 has not been such a fun time for everyone, it has really made me feel a lot more connected to the human factors and user experience community. So it's just been a lot of fun. And I really want to, at the top of the show, because I know we do it at the end, but at the top of the show, encourage people to reach out with questions if you have anything about the field, or if you just want to know a little bit more about what is UX, what is human factors, what do, what do I do, what does Nick do? Um, so that's been really, I don't know, the highlight of my past two weeks because I feel like I've gotten more and more LinkedIn messages to interact and learn from new people as well as share my experience. Yeah, um, that's that's great, Blake. I'm glad you're having a good time with life right now. I am not. Um, I I have been in like crippling depression of the last couple of days because of everything that's been going on. Yeah. Um, politically and and with. Uh, all the peaceful protests out there. Um, I just, my heart goes out to everybody. Please stay safe out there. Um, you know, we are with you 100%. If you're out there and need support, like reach Like I know you don't really know us personally, but please reach out to us if you need support. Like I can't stress that enough. This is an incredibly tough time for everybody, especially with, you know, COVID-19 and, um, everything just compounding it's incredibly insane and honestly reach out to myself and blake like this is this is for real this is us as hosts saying you can reach out to us and we will listen and we will help you however we can um i just know for me it's been it's been an incredibly tough week um you know like just dealing like my son is a person of color and this movement really means a lot to us, this family, because someday he can be impacted by this system that's systematically, uh, inherently, um, 
racist and it's just i'm sorry guys i'm getting into all this heavy shit but like man it really is a it's it's hitting me hard man like my son shouldn't have to live through this and no one should absolutely no one should so i am opening the door please reach out to us if you need anything anything at all it could be a bottle of water if you're in san diego it could be it could be emotional support. Even if we don't know you, please reach out. I can't stress that enough. We are here for you. Uh, Human Factors cast is behind you 100%. Um, but anyway, we got to get away from sort of the uh, the depressing news. I know we, we offer this show as kind of a safe space for Human Factors. That continues to be true. I just can't not acknowledge what's going on. Um, and so... With that, we'll we'll get into the rest of the show here, but but do know that our hearts are out there with all of you. Um, but Blake, I, I anything else to add to that? It's just such a such a tough time for everybody, and I do echo echo what Nick is saying. Like, please reach out to any of us if you think that we can be of any help, even if it's just somebody else to talk to or listen to you during a time of need. And Nick, like I can only imagine how you feel. I mean, be, being a parent and, you know, kind of watching the world completely change in so many different aspects, but this the institutionalized racism that exists is tough. And I, as somebody who grew up in the South and watched it most of my life, it has been a blessing to move out to a place like California and see how different it can be um, versus what I definitely experienced. And I know a lot of personal and close friends experience growing up. Uh, but there's no real way to escape it, and I think there is a lot that the country will have to go through and change through um, to ever kind of overcome it. But like Nick said, we are here for you. Human Factors Cast does support you through anything and everything that we can, in any way that we can. Beautifully said, Blake. Yeah, I don't know how much more words can be said about uh, everything that's going on, but again, we're just here to offer support. So... Two white dudes on a podcast offering support. <laughs> right. The irony is not lost as we swear we understand that. But at the same time, it's two, two people that, that, that do care um, whether you can identify that with that or not. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into a little bit of positive news? part of the show all about human factors news this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors and this week it's all about space and it, it's, it does definitely pertain to the world of human factors we're talking about the two luckiest people that get to leave planet earth right <laughs> right oh my goodness Blake, read the thing. Right at the time. All right, so on Saturday, May 30th, I hope everybody was watching, SpaceX's Falcon 9 launched Crew Dragon second demonstration, so Demo 2 mission, from Launch Complex 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And the next day, the Crew Dragon autonomously docked to the International Space Station. So this was a test flight with astronauts Bob Ken and Doug Hurley on board the Dragon spacecraft, returning human spaceflight space flight to the United States. So Demo 2 is actually the final major test of, for SpaceX's human spaceflight system to be certified by NASA for operational crew missions and to and from the ISS. SpaceX is return, returning human spaceflight to the United States with one of the safest, most advanced systems ever built, and NASA's commercial crew program is turning is a turning point for the future Amer, America's future in space exploration and lays the groundwork for future missions to the moon, Mars, and who knows where else. So, Nick, how about you? So, did you catch any of this footage over the weekend? I did. I woke up. Uh, well, I guess so. It was Saturday when when it launched, and I was uh, watching with my wife and kid. And uh, you know, it's a historic moment. You know, it's it's really awesome to see. I was I was really eagerly anticipating countdown more than I thought I would. Right? Like, there's been a million space launches, and I, this one just felt different to me because of the historic aspect to it. Right? Like, commercial space flight is now a thing. Um, or, or commercial, like spacecraft built by commercial entities. And that is such a huge thing because uh, now basically anyone could get into the space, right? I mean, this is certifying a public, uh, a company to, to carry people to space on NASA's behalf. And I love that. I love it so much. It's so exciting. It's so incredible. And you, you know, I don't know 
I don't know. I think about this all the time about like kind of the impact of SpaceX in general and just how far away it may may feel or would it have ever have gotten to this point where NASA is basically handing over and allowing a commercial company to handle a lot of the space travel industry that's going to build around this. And it's just it's a beautiful thing to see. And I feel like you. I mean, I honestly there's no lies here on Human Factors Cast for me. I didn't even know this was happening. And Elise came over to me out of nowhere and was like, hey, do you want to watch this? And we're sitting there watching the countdown, and I couldn't even believe what I was watching and the nerves and the butterflies in my stomach about, oh, my God, what is this? This is going to be insane. And just going through the entire process of watching this from start to launch and then also getting to getting to see on the screen kind of the different phases of flight and things that I just don't really know anything about, but it was an awesome experience to be able to be feel like you were a part of it. Yeah, I want to talk about a couple things. You mentioned, uh, let's see, you mentioned the watching the stages of flight, and uh, were you watching on the SpaceX stream or the NASA stream? I think it was all the same. I have no idea. I was watching it on YouTube, so, and it had like a NASA logo in it, so I'm assuming it was through you know NASA's. Did you see something like this at the bottom of the screen where it was uh, kind of this like semicircle? Yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, with little circles that indicated a timeline. I thought that was a very clever way to display uh, the timeline of what was going on and how to convey, you know, sort of the fact that they are curving around the Earth like at the same time. I thought that was very clever. That was such a good visualization for what was going on. And it was awesome to be able to see, like, there's these different discrete points that are going to happen. Because I don't really know that much about what's happening with the rocket, but it was a nice way to know and see what was coming next and then hear the commentary coming along with it. So it was it was a cool experience from that point of view, of feeling like even though I'm not an astronaut, I don't work in the aerospace industry, but I could understand to some degree what was happening. Yeah, I, I agree, too. Um, and so you mentioned that. You also mentioned the historicness of this launch. We kind of talked about that a bit. Um, but two other things really stood out to me about this um, this launch. And I don't know if we've talked about them on the show. I think we've talked about the spacesuits before on the show. Oh, yeah, we have. Uh, yeah. Those spacesuits are slick. The, dude, they look like something out of like a Scott Ridley or Kubrick film. They're amazing. Yeah. Uh, they, they are really neat. Um, and they are, they're basically, I didn't know this, but watching the stream, they're tied into the system. Like they're, they have an umbilical cord to the ship that monitors their, their, um, their biometric state. Yeah. It's like a health and status indicator. It's it's so, it's, I don't know. It was so intense to see that. And that was such a, that was such a crazy thing that I remember chatting with my mom about this morning about the amount of video angles you were able to see from in out and of the pilots of the ui that they're interacting with which was insane but also like as phases of flight changed and you would see different things outside of the spaceship happening it was i don't know it was incredible and obviously very thought out in terms of what they were going to show and what they would be able to show yeah, you mentioned the UI. I want to talk about that for a little bit. So I pulled some of this information from another article. Uh, so we got one from space.com and one from SpaceX. Um, so we're, we're sourcing multiple things. for. This. We're just talking about a subject here tonight, folks. Uh, but basically, this uh, control panel here is a touchscreen, right? And this is the first touchscreen that has ever been found in a uh, as a primary method of interacting with a system. Um, and this thing looks sleek as hell. This thing is like a, a futuristic, um, like, wet dream, I guess. It, it looks like we're in the future, right? I, I think the blue is a little bit um, science fiction-y on purpose. It's meant to look like it's the future, but honestly, it, it looks really great. So I want to um, pull out a couple key little uh, um, quotes here from, from the astronauts. As a pilot my whole career having a certain way to control a vehicle, this is certainly different. And that was Hurley. Uh, and he said that during a news conference. Uh, but they did go into it with an open mind. 
Which that, how insane would that have to be to have like been in the aerospace industry for so long and now you're basically going to hop in something brand new from a company that's not, not necessarily a government agency or somebody you maybe have worked with in the past and they're changing a lot of the way that the suits are put together, how the system works, and now they're putting you in front of this very futuristic feeling touchscreen interface you're going to fly an aircraft with and interact with ground control with. I mean, that must have been a jarring process in and of itself but at the same time i don't know that i would i mean because we're kind of looking at there i pulled a meme basically of showing you from based from like the early 60s um all the way to 2019 how cockpits have changed in aircraft or in spacecraft excuse me and it's just a world of complete difference from bunch of knobs and controls all over the place all the way to about three screens worth of real estate that are pretty large like what you would see inside of a tesla i doubt that's a a uh, a coincidence but it it's kind of crazy to see that it's consolidated this much interaction with a human into just three screens of touchscreen right i want to talk about sort of the human factors bit of the process that they went through to design these screens so uh hurley and Benkin, I, I think it's Benkin. They worked with SpaceX actually to uh, refine the way that you interface with the touchscreen and the way that you touch it, so it's actually registered on the display in order to actually be able to fly it cleanly and not make mistakes. So they took special care to design this thing so that the pilots that would be performing these actions are not going to make mistakes on a touchscreen, and I think that's really important. And I'm wondering if part of, I mean, that's a great process to go through and definitely needed here because we know all the inherent issues that come along with touchscreens, right? right? I mean, just from your phone, the mistakes you can make from tapping on stuff on the screen if it's not correctly sized. But I would imagine that probably the gloves of the spacesuits are really kind of honed in for how things are designed on this touchscreen as well. And knowing that the impact this could have of not being able to get something right on a touchscreen in space has probably led to a lot of iteration in the design and interaction with the pilots that would actually be using it throughout the flight. Right. I mean, you know, early on, there were a lot of concerns with, you know, should we use a touchscreen? Is it going to uh, work properly? You know, are you going to, how are you going to be able to excuse me, control a vehicle with these things, um, you know, and are they going to be reliable? Like you said, all those errors with touchscreen, you know, and, and uh, despite the, that sort of early hesitation about a uh, touchscreen system, SpaceX actually worked with the astronauts to create uh, an interface that was both reliable and worked for the crew. So they are taking um, the, the it's, it's almost like a very focused user feedback, right? They are asking the astronauts directly, hey, is this going to work from you or for you? Are you going to know how to operate this thing um, when you have an N of two, right? So, I mean, like, it'll be interesting to see how these displays change over time because if it's a touchscreen, now you're looking at a UI designer and it's not built into the interface. It's, it's a touchscreen. So you can move something fairly inexpensively. Are they going to design it custom for every astronaut that goes up now using this Dragon capsule, right? That's an interesting thing to think about. I could see them doing that. I mean, I could even see them, you know, creating different interfaces for different purposes of whatever the mission is, be it like commercial, are you going to the ISS, are you trying to go to Mars, and how does that like impact what things you need to be able to do from this kind of touchscreen interface itself. So yeah, it is it is a very inexpensive way to create a multifunctional interface for a spacecraft that already costs so much, but there's prop there's so much software that exists in one of these things that I can only imagine that having this kind of really interfaced and fine tuned control is a great way to allow SpaceX to cut some of the costs, but also make sure that it's functional. And it's uh, it's interesting in the bits that you pulled out of here as well, Dick. I mean, there's of course in true human factors form, there's of course a manual mode and a way to actually directly control this this actual interface without you know, like if let's say the touchscreen went down, what would you do or how would you interact with any of the controls so that's pretty awesome to see as well right yeah i mean we talked about autonomous vehicles at length last week um and you can only imagine the kind of trust these astronauts have to have in the not only the autonomous systems but the the humans back at home base like walking them through everything monitoring making sure that all the systems are good yeah the one thing that's very interesting for, I don't know, when I was thinking about it, is like I could see really trusting the SpaceX machine, right? Because they they went through testing with it. It's, it was 
specifically focused with these two pilots, I feel like I would be worried about the unknowns that come with interacting with technology that's been up there for years, like the ISS. How is this thing really going to interact with the dragon? And what does that look like? So yeah, you, you're not only trusting automation, you're trusting existing machine interfaces that you have no control over. And then like you said, you're basically putting your hands in a lot of cases in your mission control crew, which is even more important. Yeah. Blake, did you did you wake up early? I guess it was early for us on Sunday to see it dock with the ISS? No, I didn't. Did you? So I did. Um, you know, there was a couple of us in the Human Factors Cast Slack that were up and talking about it. Um, and uh, and I woke up just in time to watch it dock. Like I, I woke up uh, at, at like, I don't know, 715 or something. And it docked at 722. Um, you know, I, I, the first thing I did was throw on YouTube and look it up because I knew it was going to be around that time. So, uh, I was able to watch it dock. It was, it was pretty, pretty cool, man. Like this stuff never gets old. I don't think. No, it, it just feels so unreal. Like it, even, even like watching the launch and all kind of the fanfare around it. And then like, like we were talking about seeing the UIs that are designed so you can put it on YouTube and easily understand what's going on announcers that are surrounding it, but it just feels so I don't know. Feels so Odyssey 2001 to me. It really does. All right. Well, uh, let's, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back right after this. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and before we continue, I just want to thank all of our friends over at SpaceX and Space.com for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post those links all over our social media, or you can join us on Slack for links to the original articles. All right, let's switch gears and get to It Came From Reddit. It came from... It came from... Actually, this week, it didn't come from Reddit. It came from LinkedIn. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet, really, to bring you topics the community is talking about. Like I said, this one came from LinkedIn, and this one comes from Dan Nathan Roberts. Dan goes on to write, Hi, Blake and Nick. I've been listening for quite some time and wanted to reach out. I'd appreciate it if you could feature this as your It Came From Reddit piece of the next podcast. We need all the help we can get to use human factors to shape behavior in the post-COVID school, store, warehouse, park, etc. And now is the time to start working on this. We have a rare opportunity to leverage our knowledge and collect experimental data as places reopen so we can make improvements before they're full open, or even if they are. I'd appreciate it if anyone with example solutions, ideas, or whoever is interested in helping reached out to me. Um, and he provides his contact info there. Uh, thank you all for all you do in the field, Dan. So Blake and I decided to do something a little bit different for this. It came from Reddit. Uh, we actually reached back out to Dan and, uh, on the show tonight, we have Dan Nathan Roberts, assistant professor at San Jose State University, director of the human factors engineering lab. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure. This is a treat for me. So Dan, you reached out to us. You wanted to talk about the post COVID response. Uh, I want to ask a couple questions here. First, how did this come about and what type of call for action are you asking for the community here? So this came about because I live on a college campus. I actually live as a faculty in residence on, on the college campus and I see students every day walking about and either social distancing or not. And I think constantly about how can we as human factors, engineers and researchers and practitioners be more involved in making sure people are acting safely. And at least uh, when we think about how we could do this, 
We can think about in changes to the physical built environment. We can think about messaging, organization, culture, et cetera. And I've been asked at the university level to work on how we're going to reopen. Maybe you've heard that San Jose State and the entire uh, California State University system is going to be predominantly online in the fall, but some small classes, some labs are going to be returning. And I want to do that as safely as possible. So, so I guess, what kind of questions are you asking the field? Like, what kind of questions are you asking human factors practitioners? Uh, what type of, uh, basically, what kind of data collection are you doing and what kind of questions are you asking? So the thing that I'm most interested in is how can we shape the physical environment? How can we redesign signage and marketing and uh, markings and all kinds of directional information so that we can get people to stay as safe as possible without having to think about it? So we can put big flashing handouts in people's email inboxes. We can provide training. We can do all of those things. But we also all know that warnings are the least effective that design controls and designed environment and designing out the risk is the best thing that we can do. So what I've been tasked with is thinking about how can we make changes to the way the university operates in the fall to best shape behavior going forward so that everybody's gonna be as safe as possible. So that might be shaping the way that we have signage, it might be shaping incentives on campus. I'm not really sure, but I know that there's been research that's been done for H1N1, there's been research that's been done on what's called hostile architecture. So the Camden bench is a really famous example, a bench that's not really comfortable for people to sit on for long periods of time. So we get people moving and not congregating in the same area. But at San Jose State, we're talking about having stairwells that are only one directional or hallways that are one directional. But if you're walking down the hallway and, and you just want to go back one classroom or one office room, just 10 feet, what are the chances are that you're gonna to wanna to walk all the way around the campus or go down a floor all the way over and back up? And so how can we make it easy and natural for people to do the right thing? Right, I mean, like, could you implement lanes or something instead of one ways, right? Or or something like that. And I, I wanna to talk too briefly, like this, this could go beyond San Jose State. I mean, you could share this with the human factors practitioners, uh, you know, all over the country, all over the world, really trying to, figure out how to come back from this thing. Um, and so like, you know, it, it, the information that you're collecting is really important, not, not just for San Jose state, but for the whole community at large. That's exactly right. Is that when we were just attending the international symposium on human factors in healthcare, we saw so many great examples of human factors being used in the operating room, in the hospitals, even on the front lines, moving the healthcare outside of the hospital, how can we take all of the things that we know as human factors professionals in environmental health and safety and behavior and apply them now to the built environment outside of the healthcare so that we can support our healthcare workers so we can make everything safer? Got it. I think you have a really awesome opportunity, like you've mentioned in your response to me and Nick about the fact that, okay, most of SJSU is going to stay kind of at a social distancing level and then you'll have online classes. But at the same time, you have really a unique chance if you're going to have a couple labs open or things like that to see what works and what doesn't. Now, the, the hard part about this is when you think of like the experimental data that you could be collecting, I mean, what are you really going to collect? You're, you're probably not going to be able to get like, are you seeing enhanced or, you know, elevated levels of COVID in a place, but you can probably gather a lot of really great qualitative information from people that you're interacting with or people that are going to these labs like Nick talked about I mean the fact that you would almost have to really build into people's schedule if they miss if they miss a doorway or a classroom on their way to allow them to loop back around so it's almost being able to understand not just you know from a quantitative perspective what's really happening but from a personal perspective how does it impact you when you go to campus or you get to a lab do you feel like you can still work in the same way that you used to because I know for me and some of the personal kind of interactions I've had outside of my home in the recent past. It's been a lot of, you know, I don't even know if I feel good going out anymore, but I have seen instances where 
companies have been really good about the signage they put up or, you know, giving you auditory alerts as well to remind you to keep social distancing for people. Because it's, it's kind of funny, even though we're all run, running around wearing masks and the world's a bit different, I quickly forget to, you know, stay six feet away from somebody or somebody asks me a question while I'm in a store. I mean, you, it's almost like you go back to your old interaction pattern. So you're right, we do have a great chance to kind of dive in here, but it's kind of like, where do you even start? That's a great point. And so I think uh, everywhere that we're going to be going late summer, early fall is going to have signage about what we should be doing. But we can at least do A-B testing to improve the efficacy of the signage. And uh, we don't necessarily need to be doing in-person interviews where we might say risk uh, transmitting the virus. We can also look at how signage is changing the way people are walking. San Jose State, we're lucky is in the heart of Silicon Valley. We're a downtown campus, which means we have community members walking through for exercise every day, just getting to and from work through our campus. We have students that still live on campus year round. We have a wide variety of people who are always on campus, including the essential workers. And so if we can watch the changes that we're making on campus, the say the directional signs or barriers or any other changes that we wanna make and test, if we can see those changes, even just through security camera footage and time studies, basic industrial engineering about what direction are people headed? Are they social distancing as they're walking across campus? We can really quickly get some uh, quantitative data about the changes that we can effect. Yeah, I want to I want to get to where our listeners can go if they have any ideas. But but first, I want to just kind of wrap up a little bit about. Um, what are some good examples that you, Blake, and you, Dan, have seen out in the field of, of good human factors being used for um, social distancing and, and help mitigation of this global pandemic? So as I go shopping for my dad and for my friend's parents and myself, I see a wide variety of ways that stores are trying to do their best to keep social distancing, make uh, grocery store aisles one direction. And I've seen everything from small little arrows on the floor to large signs on the floor that say one way. But one of the best that I saw just recently was a store that had arrows on the floor making each aisle one way, but they also had eye level signage that used the same things that we see on the road, the do not enter and one way signs, those inner, those signs that are so recognizable that we have, we're so conditioned as drivers to use that it made it way more effective. And in fact, comparing that to other stores, I saw way higher adherence. So that's an easy example. But I think that to be successful, we need to look at all of the different parts of a large socio-technical systems. And that means that I want support from our human factors colleagues. I would love to get help on everybody's ideas about how we can change the way that we're uh, doing signage, that we can change the built environment, build one-way lanes like you mentioned, Nick, that we can have a cool masks program so that uh, students can opt in and, and show their support, or that we can even do things where we're annoying people that break the rules. We don't necessarily need to make things dangerous. We're not going to have those back up and pop your tire kinds of things that we'd have for cars in a parking garage, but we could still have an auditory alarm that when somebody starts walking the wrong direction, up a stairwell that's designated for down stairwell use only that they have some sort of annoying sound sometimes. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess where can our listeners go if they have good examples of human factors or if they want to contribute to sort of this, uh, this call to action? So this summer I'm going to be running experiments on campus. I would love to get ideas from people about what kinds of experiments to run examples from the literature that other people have found or people were participating in. And I'd love it if they emailed me. My email is a long one, but it's dan.nathan-roberts at sjsu.edu. Or maybe an easier one is linkedin.com slash in slash Dr. Dan NR. Or they can go to the shared Google Doc where I'm keeping notes and ideas and references, a literature review for everybody to use because this doesn't just affect San Jose State. In fact, it affects all of us and we should be sharing as a community all the ways that we can do this. And the, the way to get to that document is tinyurl.com slash post-COVID mobility, all one word. So post-COVID mobility. 
at tinyurl.com. Perfect. And I'll just mention that we do have links to all these things that you just referenced, your email, your LinkedIn, and that uh, Google Doc that you mentioned, all in the description below. So if you're listening, please, please, please uh, help us out. Help the community out. And and let's figure out a way to uh, come back safely and effectively using human factors principles. Um, did you have any, did either of you have anything else to talk about with the post COVID response? Yes. I see you, Dan. Yeah. So I, I wanted to point out that we've been building this set of references. I've been working with one of my graduating graduate students, Kelly, some, I think both of, you know, she's actually been on the show, if I recall, um, to put together a big list of references that I'm happy to share and really want to get out there. But I also have some questions for the two of you. I'm, I'm curious, where have you seen some design that really either encouraged you to do pro-social behavior or was disincentivizing? That's a good question. Blake, I'll let you go first while I noodle on that. Of course. So I have to I have to say the one that I've seen the best, I referenced it a little bit earlier, but this was at a Whole Foods grocery store near me. So it they had done a pretty good job because you, you almost have to adapt the environment that you already have to be able to make this work. And sometimes it's very inconvenient, right? Like they, they actually they have to close one of their entrances because they're only doing one way in, one way out, and they're counting people as they go in. They do a pretty good job of having nice people to greet you, but also give you instructions on what to expect, that there is, you know, one-way rows and things like that. Mm. Um, but the big thing or big mistake that I've seen in a lot of other places is – and. This is, this is a little bit typical because we're kind of used to looking at the ground when we're driving in some ways or seeing things on the road ahead of us. But when you're walking in a store, my head is not very amped to go look at the floor, especially when I'm trying to look out for other people and things like that. But something that I saw in aisles here was to mark kind of the, the six feet of separation would be putting tape almost on your peripheral so you could see like red tape out of your eye line and realize like, oh, what is that? So it draws your attention away from like looking straight so you can see if there was somebody in front of you oh i'm supposed to stay six feet away from them so that was great and dan you actually talked about auditory alerts earlier as kind of a nuisance but it it kind of gave me this very at first dystopian feel when i heard one in in um in whole foods because it reminds you in a very soft kind of siri style voice like what the rules are inside of the store to make sure you're staying six feet apart to make sure that if you are talking to somebody that you're not coughing in the direction and that kind of stuff but i actually found that really helpful because it seemed to remind me to just pay more attention and not be like getting lost looking for stuff and like feeling like i was in a panic while i'm at the grocery store so those few things of like kind of it taking advantage of drawing your attention subtly using things in your peripheral and then giving you auditory kind of continuous alerts was really helpful for me. Um, but Nick, what have you seen? Yeah, I will echo a lot of that. Um, I, I, have seen very similar things where, um, I, I will echo your comment that the red tape in the periphery, I've seen that exact same thing too. Like the six foot markers that are off the floor are very helpful. Um, and the kind of broadcast style in the grocery store, um, you know, let everybody know that the um, that, that there's a six foot rule. The aisles are one way. Um, and additionally, I've not had anybody do a sort of inst an instructional type introduction when I have come into a store. But I've definitely seen friendly people that will turn away anyone <laughs> without a mask on. Um I know a couple months ago, I guess at this point we did a uh, we did a episode on how the world might change post COVID nineteen, um, and one thing that stuck out to me was kind of these uh, reduced interaction um, handoffs or reduced interaction uh, reduced contact interactions, I should say. And um, you know, me personally, when uh, when one of my steel books came out at Best Buy, they did this curbside thing where you basically show them your receipt through the window. You open the trunk or your back window or whatever, and they place it in and no one touches anybody. And it's this complete system where um, everything is operating through a level of, of glass or, or some sort of transparency shield. Um, and I think there are ways to do that correctly. Uh, I think there are also ways to do that incorrectly. I think a lot of the... Uh, like face shields that you'll see at a grocery store that are 
put up between the the barrier between like a a, a shopper and the cashier uh, are largely ineffective when the cashier is reaching around to give them their groceries or when um, you know they're still handing off the receipt to them. Uh, I guess it still does provide some level of aerosol protection, but at the same time, it's like it's not optimal, right? They, perhaps like a face shield instead of uh, you know give everybody face shields instead of the the shields across the. Th- so there's just like sure. little things that I notice here and there that could be improved. Um, but in terms of good examples, Blake Blake took all mine, so we'll we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's Blake. it's kind of funny listening. Uh, to listening to you go on about it, Nick, it reminds me of this one story we did. It's years ago, I feel like now, but it was an Amazon store that was like a pitch of a convenience store where you could walk in and it's it's like it's true contactless payment. So you're not right. you're not tapping anything. You're walking into the store, making purchases. It knows you who you are based off of the stuff that you purchase, and you just walk out of the store. I seem to recall that pilot. And yeah. so that kind of it- stuff is really perfect here. Like if I know that, but the problem with that, of course, is it requires a fair amount of infrastructure. But that has just like popped into my head as the optimal way to stop a lot. Because I'm still, I don't know about you guys or what you've experienced, but I I went to go get takeout the other night, and like it had been fairly contactless before, kind of before stuff started opening back up. But then now that things have opened back up, it became a little bit less so. So I was actually interacting with the same machine as somebody else before me and a lot more interaction with the actual cashier. So it, it jarred me a little bit because it had been a few weeks since I had, I, I think, like interacted with a real person inside of a store. But it's it's kind of like there are some companies and systems that do exist, but it requires so much time and money to be able to put these systems in place to make it optimal for something that might not last forever. That's a good point. And um, Nick, you brought up, you know, these how people are being trained. Uh, Kelly found a great article, uh, Zotarelli and et al. in 2012 said that uh, basically increasing education had a huge impact on non-pharmaceutical interventions. So washing hands, wearing masks and things like that. So the, the more education we can do for students, for the community, for anybody that's returning to work or, or anything like that, it's going to have a huge impact, like, you know, making sure people understand the reasons you'd wear a mask or things like that. But we have some big uh, opportunities here. Uh, in 2009, there was a study of the two large universities in Texas. Um, Mitchell et al. in 2009 saw that almost half of students, 44.7% of students with acute respiratory illness still went to social events. So we have a lot of opportunity to improve. And I'd love to get any help from anybody in the community. Um, These are great suggestions. Thinking about putting some videos together for San Jose State. Maybe you guys would be willing to be some of the the video presenters. Yeah. Let us know. Reach out to us. We're happy to do it. Um, And, you know, if if it it goes two ways, perhaps we can host them on on, uh, the Human Factors cast feed, too, to help get that word out. Um, Absolutely. Blake's dulcet voice <laughs> singing out through San Jose State campus. Hey, everybody, please go this direction. <laughs> they might not listen. <laughs> I love it. All right. So uh, I want to wrap this up because I do want to get into another topic. But again, all the links to everything down below in the description. Please, please, please reach out to Dan if you have any uh, any feedback, anything you want to contribute to this call to action uh, for the human factors field. Dan, you mentioned earlier that you went to the human factors healthcare symposium and it was a digital event. Blake and I both had prior engagements that we couldn't make it, but I wanted to get kind of your sense of this event because it was, uh, I know we're kind of switching gears here, but this is something that we both wish we could have made and we've had coverage of in the past, but we didn't get any coverage this year. Can you kind of give us your, uh, your overview of how it went um, being a digital format and kind of what types of talks were being uh, presented at at a, at a at this conference where we're in this COVID world, right? I'm, I'm imagining a lot of talks were kind of shaped around that frame of reference. So I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, this was the 2020 International Symposium on Human Factors and Ergonomics and Healthcare. Uh, this was Joe Keebler and uh, Tony Andre co-chairing it. And it was, um, I was really impressed at how enjoyable and seamless kind of the virtual attendance was. 
I was talking with some of the other attendees while we were attending and I had a couple of different monitors going so I could watch a presentation and simultaneously chat with some of my colleagues and say, hey, that was a really great point or um, things like that. So it was really neat. They did a good job of trying to create some community and, uh, and they also, boy, did they put in a lot of work as facilitators and co-hosts um, putting on a really good conference. It was um, thinking about kind of one of the opportunities that we have in this, uh, where we are right now is being able to attend conferences all over the world. So um, ODAM, Organizational Design and Management Conference that I haven't been able to attend in person was just uh, last month and you can attend virtually now, right? I had to wake up super early in the morning to be able to attend because I think the first session I wanted to see was at something like 4.30 in the morning, my time, but so cool, right? That that's the other side of this. Um, so the presentations were really neat. I saw some great presentations during the poster session, actually. It was a whole day long two track poster session. Each presenter had about six minutes to present their poster. And I saw people come up with really inventive slideshows. Yoel Donshin, really well known for his uh, excellent presentations, did a green screen effect where he's talking over his slides. It was really neat. And then there was also a lot of good presenters doing the regular uh, sessions too. So the opening session, looking at patient journeys and the tests through the COVID healthcare experience with SQ Yin and the others, it was really, I thought a very good and timely conference while also presenting uh, the regular kind of research in healthcare that we get. So it was a good mix in my opinion. Yeah, that all digital conference and conferences going digital uh, just in general is something that Blake and I have been pushing for a very long time within the human factors community. I think there's a lot of good that can be done by making that knowledge accessible worldwide um, and presenting in a way that anyone can attend, right? I mean, you still get the the benefit of in-person with the social networking um, uh, type of things and especially I think it's interesting that you commented on this where you had a Zoom up with some of your colleagues and talking about presentations as it was going. Uh, and that seems very exciting to me. I would love to just sit and chat with Blake and be like, oh, did you see what he just did there? That was so clever. That was really neat. Um, you know, and that was exactly what we were doing. It was really fantastic. I got a chance to chat with Emily Patterson and pick her brain about some of the presentations that were going on kind of while they were going on. It was it was a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I and I did I did mention it earlier, but we talked about it a couple months ago. I guess this was episode 161 uh for anyone listening that wants to go back and listen, but the nine predictions of for a post-COVID-19 world, we did talk about um sort of these all digital events. And uh yeah, man, that's that's awesome. I'm glad you got a chance to attend. Um what was uh what was kind of your favorite piece of knowledge or like a little nugget that you pulled out of there that just stuck with you? One of the, the sessions I really enjoyed was the remote and safe in-person testing of medical devices panel. Uh, Mike Wickland was instrumental in that. He talked about how he's going to be opening back up his usability for medical device testing lab and trying to make things as safe as possible. And he talked about how he's going to be doing contact, uh, contact checkups with any participants that he has for the 14 days after they're a participant in his usability studies to see if they develop any symptoms and keep track of that. I thought that was brilliant and something we're gonna start doing at least in my research lab um, and I'll encourage other people on campus to be doing too. That's a pretty incredible like thing to stipulate and put in there. So I'm glad that a lot of people are kind of getting that out there in the community because I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people that rely a lot on doing this in-person research. And a lot of times I think there's a lot more benefit to doing some of that as beneficial as it can be to do remote research. So that's great that people are already sticking in these kind of, how do I keep up with my participants and make them one, feel like a human and two, actually t keep track of people that have been in my lab and the like vulnerability that I may be putting out there. Yeah, it was cool. And um, there were uh, two other presenters, uh, Gregory Cece and Jason Spialetta, who were talking about persuasion and behavior change during and after COVID-19. So, of course, this tied right into the things that we were talking about just earlier. And I was psyched to hear what they were talking about and all of the different ways to do audience analysis and um, really to have modeling of behavior hate change and then testing behavior change. So that was very, very cool presentation, in my opinion. 
That's awesome. Well, it sounds like it was a great conference. Um, I don't know, Blake, did you have any other questions? So in terms of, I'm just going to try and bring it a little bit back to what you had written in about. And in terms of what you heard at the conference, did you feel like you had a lot of great actionable things you could walk away with and apply to the problem of trying to develop ideas and concept for post-COVID mobility? And is that did that in any way inspire you to kind of like go down this route? There were definitely help, yeah. So looking at Mike Wicklin's presentation, looking at um, the other presentations, uh, Gregory Cece's and Jason Spioletta's and, and other presentations on looking at uh, trust and information, there were some very cool ones that definitely I took a lot of notes on and thinking about how to use this exactly in the problem that, that I'm being involved in. And, and I hope that many of us are going to work on how we can get involved. The other thing that was really cool about the presentations was this general call to action. There was a reoccurring call that said, look, if you know people who are working in healthcare, if you want to reach out to blood banks, offices, in-home care, uh, senior centers, social services, shelters, anybody else where you think you could make a difference, they they need human factors and they might not know it. But looking at how Sarah Fouquet got involved and some of the other uh, people got involved in their health organizations by saying, I think I can help. I've worked up this model or I think I can try this thing. Uh, you know, put me in coach or here's something that I've tried to do and kind of calling all of us to reach out to somebody that we know that's a healthcare worker or somebody that works somewhere that, that we can say, Hey, how can we help make your processes easier and better? That's awesome. That's an incredible message, incredible message. And, and hopefully it resonates with some, someone listening to the show will reach out to someone. That's my only hope, right? Is that, is that people listening to this will take that message and, and do some action on it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the news stories this week. Uh, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at HFactors Podcast. If you want to email us directly, you can do that at show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, there are many other things out there that you can donate to please consider donating to those first we are not as worthy as other causes and of course you can always reach us at our home on the web humanfactorscast.com i want to thank dr dan nathan roberts for being on the show thank you so much for coming on and talking about this post-covid 19 response where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about anything any ideas any any sort of feedback where can they find you you know, Dan Nathan Roberts, it's a long name. It's pretty easy to find. Use your favorite search engine or go to linkedin.com slash in slash Dr. Dan NR. You can go to tinyurl.com slash post COVID mobility. Send me an email at San Jose State, dan.nathan-roberts at sjsu.edu. Nick and Blake, it's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show. Where can our listeners find you if they want to talk about your confusing name? Oh, you guys can always find me at Blake in the Human Factors Cast Slack or across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Dan, at the end of the show, we like to say it depends because in Human Factors, it always depends. You know, you listen to the show. I'll count us down from three on one. We'll say it depends. Three, two, one. It It depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.